welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Antichrists have come. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and you know that no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar but one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is what, has prom- what he has promised us, eternal life. I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. And as for you, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and so that you do not need anyone to teach you. But this anointing teaches you about all things, and this is true and not a lie. And just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of him. Thank you. You can be seated. That was a long one. (laughs) Um, So... If I can get the first slide up there, the pictures. All right. Um, Barack Obama, Bill Gates, Frederick Nietzsche, and Oprah Winfrey. What do all these people have in common? Have in common. They are on the screen. Yes. <laughs> they are up there. Um, yes. They have all been called the Antichrist. <laughs> I should have brought, like, a candy bar or something. Um, <laughs> so... Those four have been called the Antichrist. We can also include Gandhi. Yes, Gandhi has been called the Antichrist. Rob Bell um, has been called the Antichrist. But I found an article called Rob Bell is not the Antichrist. (laughs) Probably. Um, (laughs) That's about as as good as it gets there. Um, He's got mixed up. Okay. Also, David Hasselhoff was called the Antichrist at the... uh, the, the apex of Baywatch. Um, <laughs> Ronald Reagan was called the Antichrist. He won 49 states on his way to the White House in 1984. Can anyone tell me which one he didn't win? I just found that out on, like, Tuesday. I was <laughs> really proud of that. Uh, but apparently everyone knows. Um, the last one, this is my, my favorite one. Um, Barney the Dinosaur has been called the Antichrist. Um, okay, so... John, when he's writing this, would have no idea that dinosaurs even existed, right? So if he saw one in a dream, he would think it's a dragon. Uh, Revelation, so with that in mind, Revelation 12.3, and there appear, appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Revelation 13.4, and they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? I love you, you love me. Um, he lo- laid hold onto the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Barney, the Antichrist. Um, so, if you know anything about me, I am a constant like uh, researcher. I grab information all the time. So, when I put Antichrist into Google and got 16 million results, I was in a little bit of trouble. Um, <laughs> lost a few hours of my life. That's okay. Um, got some good stuff. 27 characteristics of the Antichrist. I found some interesting stuff. Um, the Antichrist will subdue three kings. 
who have no des uh, desire or regard for for women. Sorry, ladies. Um, I'm very apologetic for that. You, um, if you're single, the Antichrist is not someone that you want to be going after. Um, and he, he will be somehow related to the number 666, um, but not necessarily, obviously. There's another 24 of those. Um, I found a game, and uh, there's there were 20 hints of um, famous people who have been called the Antichrist, and I got 15 of them, 75% asked. Um, I was proud of that. So lots of stuff, and um, we all know that the anti we all, I, I say the Antichrist, and we get a picture in our mind, a very clear picture. For most of us, that picture is of a guy named Nikolai Carpathia. Um, <laughs> and uh, another way to waste time, uh, if you have time to waste, look up Left Behind Book Burning. Um, me and Micah sat in a coffee shop for a little bit and watched videos. Um, sorry, Micah, for throwing you under the bus there. All right, so Antichrist. Um, I'm going to give you a little blueprint for today. Um, we're going to be talking about the Antichrist. We're, we're going to be talking about a whole lot more than that. And we're going to start up in our minds, and we're going to talk about Christ, Christology, um, who is Christ, and then who is the Antichrist. And then we're going to move to the heart. And in the heart, we're going to talk about how we relate to Christ and to the Antichrist. And then finally, we're going to end in the gut. And um, in the gut, we're going to talk about what this means as we move forward. Um, so, being that 16 million results came up on Google, I thought this is probably something in scripture that's fairly important. It's talked about a lot. So I looked it up, um, went to bible.crosswalk.com, and put in Antichrist, and found six results. Interesting. Six times in the entire Bible it's mentioned. And it's mentioned in only two books. So, First John, obviously. Can you guys tell me what the second one is? Not Genesis, not Revelation, surprisingly. That's the first place I looked. It's not in there. Anyone else? Second John. Yes. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, Second John. No Revelation, no Daniel, no Second Th Thessalonians. All of these have imagery that people have connected to the Antichrist, but none of them actually talk about the Antichrist. Um, so, First and Second John both very short letters written from the same author to the same community. Um, whenever you're reading scripture and you find something that is uh, relocated to one specific spot in scripture, you need to ask the question, why this spot? Who, who is the author? Who is his audience? Why, why is he talking about this here? Um, rather than first going to, this is a universal that everyone needs to know. So um, when asking that question, we need to go to the text. And John writes, Now many antichrists have come. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. So John has a certain um, message that he's trying to get across. He's, he's speaking to a certain context. They had all of these people in their community who'd been a part of their community, and then they left. And they, they, they not only left the community, but they left... Um, they're following Christ. And um, I think Micah could probably back me up on this. John is, is saddened that they left the community, but he's infinitely more saddened that they didn't join another community, that they, they just walked away from Christ. Um, so this is the context of Antichrist. But what does he say about the Antichrist? He says the Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists have come. The Antichrist is the one who denies the Father and the Son. 
The spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. Those who go out into the world and do not confess that Jesus Christ is the Antichrist, or Jesus Christ, they are the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ is not the Antichrist. So half of these references are about the Antichrist having already come, and half of them are about many Antichrists, which is interesting because when we think about Antichrist, we think about one person who's coming in the future, the complete opposite of what John says. Um, I don't have time to go into to details, but on the book of Revelation, where we all believe that this idea of the Antichrist comes, um, if you go into it believing that, that Revelation is about the future, you're going to read it as if it's about the future. If you go into it believing that it's about a current uh, a context that John was, was writing in, a context that included an emperor and an empire that were persecuting Christians, the book begins to make a lot more sense. Um, otherwise, we're talking about sea dragons and infant runaways, and um, things just get very confusing. Um, so, in talking about what the Antichrist is, um, we need to go into the Greek. And in the Greek, anti means what it obviously means in English, against, um, instead of substituting, and then Christ. So the question then is, who is Christ? Um, we know that, Je that Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. That's like the easiest question that we could ever be asked as Christians. Um, this person who lived in the first century died and then rose again. But when John's writing this, this is at least 40 years after Jesus had died, and he's writing about Antichrist. So he's speaking to something that is bigger than just somebody who lived on this earth. And that's where we need to go into Christology. Um, can anyone tell me what Christ means? This is participatory. I'm going to keep asking questions, so be ready. Anyone know? Uh, oh, man. Shoot, it means the anointed one. Um, I made a PowerPoint that brought them up dot by dot, but then we put it in a different program. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so it means the anointed one. It's a, uh, a Greek word that is used to replace the Hebrew word Mashiach, uh, Mesh uh, Messiah in English. Um, it's one of the very few words that that translators don't translate from the Greek into English. They basically just transliterate it, which I think is actually a very unfortunate omission because it means that we end up saying things like Jesus Christ, as if uh, Christ is the last name of some guy named Jesus. Um, and I think we lose a lot in that. Um, so Jesus is a transliteration. Wait for this. Jesus is a transliteration of the Greek word Jesus, which is a transliteration of the Aramaic Yeshua, which transliteration of the Hebrew Yahashua, which we know is Joshua and means God saves. So God saves the anointed one. Uh, the anointed one is not a last name, but it's a vocation. It's something that, that Jesus takes on. Um, going back in the Hebrew with the idea of Messiah, we find that the root word means to smear or to anoint. Um, anoint means to rub with oil. The word, um, the word anoint, or yeah, the word anoint can basically mean uh, to smear with color, which we know as painting, um, or it can mean to consecrate something, set something apart for a special use, usually divine. So we have this sort of thing being used to talk about um, the nation of Israel, uh, kings, priests, um, different things in the temple. Um, the way that it's used to talk about Jesus is it's used as an adjective until much later in Israelite history. So you would have a Messiah priest, a Messiah king, um, but you would never have a Messiah, 
an anointed one. You would have a, an anointed priest or an anointed king. Um, it's, not, it's later, as Israel goes into exile, that we find this, um, this idea of a Messiah starting to come about. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets start talking about this, this person who's going to arise and save Israel. And they talk about um, many different things, but the thing that's important to us is that it becomes this sort of folklore um, concept where Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the prophets are talking about a certain thing. And the nation of Israel gets an idea of this nationalistic, militaristic kind of person. So this continues on. Israel comes out of exile. They live in the land for a while. They come under Roman occupation. They are uh, basically crunched as a nation. They, they, aren't, they are allowed to worship, but they aren't allowed to really have their, their full identity. So you see these messiahs arise. And these messiahs rile up all, their, all these followers, and then they go up against Rome. And this all happened multiple times, and every time Rome would obliviate them. The best way to tell if a messiah was actually a true messiah was to see if they died or not. So the whole nation would wait and watch, and then the messiahs would die, and then they would move on and wait for the next one. And this is why Peter, when he is asked whether Jesus is who he believes Jesus is, he says Jesus is the messiah. And then... Right after that, Jesus says, I'm going to Rome, or I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And he says, no, you're not. When, when Jesus is arrested, Peter picks up his sword and tries to kill the soldiers who come after him. Jesus says, put down your sword. This, is, this isn't what we're about. So Jesus is this different kind of Messiah. It, it's interesting. If you, read, if you read the Gospels, you find this, this sort of feeling within the disciples. After Jesus dies, they basically give up. <laughs> they come together and talk about what do we do now. A lot of them walk away. Peter just goes back to fishing. They think he's a false messiah. So it's when, it's when Jesus is resurrected that we find proof of his, of his true messiahship. I've gone off course a little bit, so I have to figure out where I'm at. Okay, so Jesus says, okay, here we go. So the term Christ, it's not a, a last name, but a vocation. Uh, taken on by the, the person of Jesus of Nazareth as the one who's been anointed by God to save Israel. Um, he's the promised one of God. As such, it seems more appropriate, as some theologians have, have done, to say Jesus the Christ instead of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one. Um, Jesus, the one with the special anointing, but what is that anointing? And the anointing is this, um, is basically what he says it is. Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to him, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is telling the people in the synagogue that he is the one who the prophets spoke about. He is the Holy One of Israel, the anointed one, the one who has come to bring good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to the captives, uh, release the oppressed, give sight to the blind. The anointing of Jesus of Nazareth is about real, tangible changes in this world now. Jesus, the anointed one. So the Antichrist, the one who is against the anointed one, is the one who is against the, miss the mission of Christ in the world. So John's readers, when they hear this message about the Antichrist, they, they do have an idea of someone who's coming in the future, but John directly speaks against that and says, you are you are a part of this community, and there are antichrists that have been among you, and they're already here. He changes the conversation. John believed it to be the last hour. 
And this is kind of, this is a, a, an awkward thing for Christians because all of, the, all of the New Testament writers talked about it being the last hour. And how long has it been since they said that? 2,000 years. Um, but we have two options. Either John was wrong and, it's not, and it wasn't the last hour or it was the last hour. The Antichrist had come and there's no one we're waiting for. We're not waiting for an Antichrist. There is no particular person who's going to come at the end to fight against God's kingdom. He believed it to be the, the last hour. He says that the Antichrists have come. We can stop waiting for the moon to darken. We can stop uh, waiting for the sky to turn the color of blood. Um, we can stop waiting for any sort of magic and realize that the gospel and the kingdom that both John and Jesus were talking about is something that exists right now and something that we're called to enact, not something that we're waiting for. We need to take action now. Um, it's a place where good news for the poor is preached where captives are released, where the formerly blind can see, where, where the oppressed go free. So if the Antichrist is against the anointed one as against God's kingdom being established on earth, the Antichrist is the one yelling out, yelling too loud for the poor to hear the good news. The Antichrist is the one who is keeping the chains on captain, captive prisoners' wrists. The Antichrist is pulling wool over the blind's eyes so that when they receive sight, they don't even know. The Antichrist is the one telling those around them that they're not free to live and, who, and be who they were created to be. The Antichrist is you and me and them and us. The Antichrist is us as we oppose the things that Jesus was anointed to do, as we stop participating in the kingdom of God. If you're a careful reader, you'll, you'll see one thing. Do you guys see a difference between what I'm saying and what John says? There is one. John says the, the Antichrist is one who denies the Father and the Son, and I say that the Antichrist is the one who's against the kingdom of God. But what does it mean to deny the Father and the Son, but to be against the kingdom of God? Is it really possible that the God of the universe is more concerned about someone's personal salvation than taking care of the poor and the oppressed? Is it, is it really possible that God is more concerned with someone going to heaven than someone being taken out of child slavery, out of... Uh, all sorts of evils that we see today. Does the God of the universe care more about the future than today? Does he care whether we call ourselves Christians or whether we act as Christ taught? And here's, here's the really tough question that I've been throwing around for the last two weeks. I asked this in, in theology class on, on Tuesday night, and we basically just had to skip the subject because people got a little angry. Is, is it more worshipful to sit and sing songs, or is it more worshipful to get out and get our hands dirty and serve the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed? I, I have no, nothing against worship music at all, but if that's all we're doing, is that worshipful? There's this town in the middle of Switzerland. It's in the middle of the Alps. Interesting biographical note. Has anyone ever been on Ancestry.com? No? I'm the only nerd in the room. Awesome. Ancestry.com, two-week trial. I go on there. I trace my, my family back like 17 generations. I always thought I was German. Found out I'm Swiss. So <laughs> celebrate Switzerland. I'm also German, too, but I was just happy about that. So there's this town in the middle of Switzerland. It's nestled in between all, all the, the Alps and basically cut off from all human contact, right? Until one day, this woman walks into the village. It's the dead middle, middle of winter. She walks into the village, and she collapses on the street. And they go and pick her up, and they bring her to the doctor, and they try to, they try to save her, but she dies of hypothermia. And so the doctor, he pulls this document out of her possessions and reads it, and it's about Jesus. And 
he finds this Jesus fascinating. Up until this point, the Swiss town had had no concept of anything bigger than themselves. They were just this island. And so he reads it, and he finds it fascinating. He goes and he shares it with everyone else. And they decide that they're going to live their life modeled after this person named Jesus. And there's all this stuff about God, but they had no idea anything about God, so they just ignored that. And for the next 150 years, they were the most peaceful, loving, caring community on the face of the planet. So one day, this young scribe, most intelligent man the village had ever known, he's, he's copying this document just in case if they lost it, they would have another one. They would still have the message. So he's, he's copying it, and he starts seeing all this language about God, and he's, he's wondering, maybe we got this wrong. And so he figures out that this document isn't actually about following Jesus. It's about worshiping Jesus for what, how Jesus helped the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. So then he, he goes to the, the matriarch of the town, who's the most intelligent woman the town had ever known. And, and he says, I think if, if we believe that Jesus is God, he'll, he'll save us from death and we can live forever. And the matriarch says, dear child, you truly have a wonderful mind. I've been waiting 75 years for someone to come and tell me what I once read in that document. And the, the young scribe, eyes furrowed, says, as you once read? And she said, yes, I once read that. And I was told by the, by the doctor who first found the document that I had a wonderful mind and that someday someone is going to come to me and tell me the same thing. And I was to tell them to never tell another living soul until they were told the same thing. And the scribe pleaded, we, we got to tell everyone, we live the best life ever. The only thing we're scared of is losing this life, is dying. And now we can live forever. And the matriarch explained that if anyone took seriously the idea that they could live forever, that they would stop living at all. The doctor made the decision when he first saw the document to spin it so that it focused on the way that Jesus lived, not on the fact that he was God. And because of that, we have the most beautiful, wonderful place that has ever existed. Everyone treats each other with respect. Everyone treats each other equally. There's no hierarchy. There's no oppression, no marginalization. And the matriarch looked at him and said, I tell you this, and I implore you, please don't tell anyone, but I cannot stop you. And so the young scribe is appalled that she had kept this information from the town for so long. And, she, and he goes out and he tells everyone, and they accept it and are so happy. And a week later, the matriarch dies. And the scribe is sad, but he decides if she had just simply believed that, that Jesus was God, she would have lived forever. And so he moves on. But it isn't soon until other people start dying, ones who believe that Jesus was God, ones who should have been living forever. So he decides maybe this is about living another life forever. We die, we go to another place, and we live that life forever. And so he tells the townspeople that. They start asking questions. They don't really get what's going on. And they accept the answer. And year after year, the town gets worse and worse because nobody cares any longer about this life. They, start, they stop treating each other well. They stop taking care of the poor. It just becomes the worst place that had ever existed on the face of the planet. And the young scribe, now old, sits in the center of town and waits, waits for some person to come and tell him that the document wasn't really about living forever. It was about living a life for the sake of others. This story isn't true. Um, I wrote it this week when thinking about, when thinking about this text. But I, I really believe the moment we begin living for the future we stop living for the present. Jesus said not to worry about tomorrow. He said, he said, don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. All of these things will take care of themselves. 
I don't think he was advocating some sort of like irresponsible stewardship where we just kind of throw our money away and, and don't plan for the future. I think he was saying, don't worry about heaven. If heaven is real, it's going to happen. That's not what, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to live an anointing. In the text, John, John connects the Antichrist to going against the anointed one. And then he, he turns to his community and he says, you are anointed. Same word used to talk about Christ, just in a different form. Christos and Chrisma. There are ones who are against the anointed one, and there are ones who are anointed. And that anoint, it's, the sa- it's the same anointing. We are called to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to pronounce the, the year of God's favor. The Eastern Church, I struggled with whether I was going to share this or not. The Eastern Church, it has this idea of deification, whereby we live as the example of Christ and we participate in, our, in, in his anointing, and in that we become divine. Salvation for the individual comes as we participate in the salvation of others and the world. That is how we are made right with God. Even Martin Luther, I had to find a, a, an example that um, would get me out of trouble, I think. Martin Luther, uh, who is this theologian that we look to, he was the theologian of, of grace alone. But he even said, salvation uh, is, is bigger than that. For if I do not use everything that I have to serve my neighbor, I rob him of what I owe him according to God's will. A Christian then becomes a work of Christ and even more a Christ to the neighbor. The Christian does what Christ does. The Christian identifies with the suffering of his or her neighbor. There is a connection between identifying ourselves with Christ and living out the anointing of Christ. So stop living like the world doesn't matter because it does stop thinking about tomorrow be present today the main reason that non-christians say that they aren't christians is, is because we don't live like christ we don't live out what christ lived and i would say it's because we don't walk what we talk but this future-oriented theology where we where christianity is about going to heaven has so pervaded our our culture that even our preaching oftentimes and not micah's um, <laughs> uh, even our, pre- our preaching is often filled with the idea that we just simply need to accept some sort of um, lordship of Christ, and then we're good. We substitute programs, functions, and meetings for any sort of practical, tangible ways of living in the world. One of the things that saddens me most is that a lot of my friends who aren't Christians do much more in the world for justice and ending any sort of marginalization. I mean, as Christians, that should bother us. That should really bother us. Balcony people, I haven't been looking at you the whole time. Hello. <laughs> we, should, we should really, really be bothered by that. If, if, we are, if we are taking part in the truth, then that truth should lead us to live a life that looks different. So it's more about just living peacefully with our neighbor it's about going to the depths of the systems that we live in because every part of our lives is subject to, to systems of power and oppression. And our calling is to not just take part in doing good things for our neighbor, but as I tried to say in announcements a few weeks ago, it's about going further and making sure that our neighbors aren't held captive to any sort of system that's going to keep them down and not allow them to live the life that has been set before them. Um, ben and the band can come up as I finish now. So our anointing is to end injustice and establish shalom. It's to bring good news to the poor, release the captives, bring sight to the blind and, and freedom to the oppressed, to bring divine favor to all. We are called to participate in the anointing and participate in the anointed one.
And one, one way that we do that um, is through communion. I'm going to uh, pray, so if you'd bow your heads with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, th we thank you for today, and uh, it's time to come together, and we just ask your blessing upon us as we take part in community, in communion, in the body and the blood of Christ. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So one way we participate in the anointing and participate in the anointed one is by taking communion. And in doing this, we participate with the entirety of all the anointed ones throughout history. Every person who has ever existed and been anointed is participating in, the communi in communion at the same time. And I want to make clear, anointed one doesn't mean anything about particular choosing. The anointing is for anyone. And here at Awaken, we invite anyone to take part in communion. You don't have to have any sort of relationship with Christ. There is no, um, there's no requirements. It's, it's bread, it's wine and juice. Um, so we have a couple of stations set up around here. Um, Gluten-free right here. Uh, and this is the normal one. And then up by the... <laughs> traditional? Oh, okay. There's another one up there that's not gluten-free. Um, enjoy.
Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.